morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed the robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Everybody, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Really, really glad that you're here. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, welcome those of you at our East service, those of you who are tuning in online. Uh, welcome. Uh, first, does it look like I got some sun? Uh, you know where I got this sun? Ohio. Huh? Yeah. It's been a great week. Hope that you've been able to enjoy the week. Hope you enjoy uh, today. Uh, listen, I also wanted uh, you to notice that when we had the scripture read throughout this series, we've had it read kind of out and about, where there'd be people who were not necessarily church people. We did that for a reason. Uh, this series is called our Breathing Out series. We believe that there's a rhythm to the Christian life, a rhythm to our church. But there are times when we kind of take in the truth of God, the love of God, the grace of God, deeper for ourselves. There are other times where we take the truth of God, the love of God, the grace of God, and let it flow out of us to the people around us and to our community. Inhaling, exhaling, breathing in, breathing out. So this is our breathing out series. So we wanted scripture read uh, kind of out and about where there might be people who are not church people who don't yet know God. All right. So we've been looking at the book of Jonah. This is our third week of our four-week series. Uh, Jonah is a book where the gospel is played out in a drama that is kind of writ large. The gospel is the good news, uh, that even though we have sinned and run away from God, that God in his love has pursued us in grace. Jonah is a story about a man who runs from God, and God in his love pursues that man. It is running and chasing sin and grace. And Jonah is a, is a very small book. It even has short chapters, just four chapters, but it is full of surprises. The first surprise in Jonah is that God uses Jonah. 
that he wants to use Jonah to reach people who are far away from God, to reach the Ninevites, that God doesn't need Jonah, but he's using Jonah for Jonah because he knows something is going on in Jonah's heart that is not good, which we'll see more next week. So God is going to use Jonah to reach the Ninevites, and so he's doing the proverbial uh, two birds with one stone. But God doesn't need him. He'd be much more efficient if he did it himself. But the first surprise is that God uses people to reach people. That means that God uses people like you, people like me, to reach people who do not yet know of his love and who have not yet fallen in love with him. And God has scattered all of us all around. And you know people that I don't know, and I know people that you don't know. And God has scattered us with coworkers and friends and neighbors and teammates that do not yet know him. And he uses people like you, like me, to introduce them to God. All right, that's the first surprise. The second surprise is that people say no. People say no to God. People say, no, I will not be used. That's what Jonah does. God says to Jonah, I want you to reach these people who are far away from God. And Jonah says, I won't. And he runs. The third surprise is that God doesn't give up on Jonah when he runs. He doesn't give up on us when we disobey him or when we say no to him. But instead, God pursues Jonah, and he does it in the form of a storm, not because, and the storm hits Jonah's life, not because God hates Jonah, but because God loves Jonah. So if you are disobeying God or running from God and a storm is starting to gather, it is love that is coming for you. That's the third surprise. Last week, we ended with uh, Jonah being deposited back up on shore after spending three days and three nights in the belly of a big fish. And this time, he is ready to obey God and head to Nineveh with the message that God has given him. And we picked that up, and we are now in chapter 3, and we had all of chapter 3 read for us. Let me give you my three points so you know where I'm going. All right, here are the three points. The first, I want to talk about the message of Jonah, the message of Jonah, the reaction of the people, and finally, the response of God. The message of Jonah, the reaction of the people, and the response of God. First, the message of Jonah. Now, I have been a minister for a lot of years, which means I have preached a lot of sermons. Uh, that has made me a connoisseur or a critic of, uh, of public speaking in general and of preaching in particular. And uh, Jonah's sermon here is just not very good. Can I tell you that? It's in verse 4. This is what he says, verse 4. Uh, but the Lord, oh, verse 4 of chapter 3, sorry. Uh, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Uh, if you're going to preach a bad sermon, at least make it short, right? So he does that. There, are, there, there is nothing to that. There are no three points, which is, you know, terrible. Uh, there's no, there are no illustrations, no stories. There's no props, except maybe if he is bleached white from, being, from the stomach acid of the fish. You know, maybe that would be a great prop. 
But his, so he preaches this sermon. So I, this uh, begs the question. Here's my question. Uh, what makes a sermon work? Right? What makes a sermon work? I, I spend a considerable amount of time trying to think through uh, a message uh, for these 30 minutes, right? And I do it because I feel like if I'm going to ask you for 30 minutes of your time, I want to make it worthwhile. So I really want my sermons to be good, but more than that, I want them to work. And when I say that, what I, what I mean is that I want them to uh, do in your life what God wants to have done inside of you, right? That's the goal. So ask the question again, why, why do some sermons work and some don't? Everybody hears the same sermon, right? I think it's you. <laughs> All right, just kidding. No, I'm not dead serious. No, I'll tell you, listen, I think it's, uh, it's both of us and it's neither of us at the same time. This is what I mean. Uh, if a sermon works in your life, it's because God has already been working. If I preach a sermon that works in your life, I'm just being obedient to what God wants me to do. But if God is accomplishing something in your, if he accomplishes something in your heart today, even today. It's not because it was a well-crafted sermon. It's not because I used a great story or had a prop like a potato, although that was a killer prop, right? It's because God has been working. God is always working in your life. So Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches what is not a very good sermon and people respond because God has already been working in the people of Nineveh. He doesn't need Jonah to do that work. He just needs Jonah to be obedient. I'm convinced that a lot of us avoid spiritual conversations with coworkers or family members or neighbors or, or uh, friends because we think it's all dependent on us that we think we have to take them from zero to 60 and it's all on us. It's like we're, we're looking at a huge tree and, and we have an ax and we're looking at that tree and just going, I can't do it. I don't know what kind of questions they're gonna ask. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. And what we don't see is on the, the other side of the tree, God has cut the, the tree already to just, a, just an inch and he's handed us an ax and he said, just take a swing, take a swing and see what will happen. I remember there was a couple that came into my office a few years ago, Dale and Maggie. Dale had, uh, was a very new Christian, and he and Maggie had started dating. They were in their 50s, and uh, I had uh, this understanding that Maggie didn't have much of a spiritual background at all. And I knew they were coming in because they were uh, dating, getting close, they wanted to get married, and I thought, boy, this is gonna be a complicated conversation because I have to talk to them about dating and about uh, then their marriage and then her faith. And I don't know where she is with her faith, so I need to take it slow. And, and so they sat down and I said, uh, well, Dale, why don't you explain uh, to me what, what your relationship is like with Jesus? What happened in you? And he kind of explained it. And I said to Maggie, I said, Maggie, um, do you understand what Dale just said? Um, have you ever had an experience with God that that seemed like that. I was just kind of, mm, 
like this. She goes, are you asking if I'm saved? And I was going, okay, that jumped up a notch. Uh, yeah, I guess I am. And she goes, no, I'm not, but I want to be, right? That's it. And I was going, God, had, God didn't need me, right? He brought somebody in that was just this close, and he handed me an axe and said, Joe, take a swing. Take a swing. So I, I got to have Dale. I said, Dale, why don't you lead Maggie to Jesus? And I watched him and led him as he led her to Jesus, and now they're married. Right? What a great story. God didn't need me. He just said, Joe, I want to use you, right? You know, I, I love that we have a song that we sing. Uh, it's, we usually sing it in the second and third service, right? And it's uh, called Waymaker. I love that song. It says, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. And then there's a refrain that says this, uh, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Listen, you want to know how God works, why some sermons work, some don't. It's because God is working. You want to know when God prompts you to say something to someone, has a neighbor come over and ask you a question, God is saying, if you will just be obedient, it doesn't have to be a great sermon to work, right? First Peter chapter 3, Peter says this uh, to all of us. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. One of the things that we wanted to do through this series is help you just be prepared for when someone says to you, why do you act the way you act? And they say it in a good way. Why do you do this? Why do you go to church? And we have called the project the Story of Grace Project, where each week we have said that we want you to grab one of these on the way out and just look at it and work out your own story of grace so you can tell somebody. So you are prepared to explain to somebody the hope that is within you in 60 seconds. If you don't know this, know how to do it, go to the workshop right after this service, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, and then you'll be prepared. Listen, God wants to use people like you, people like me, but you don't have to do the heavy lifting. God is already working in the people around you. And he's looking for someone, anyone, you, me, just to be obedient and just to say, okay, I'll take a swing. Jonah didn't even want his sermon to work. He didn't want it to work. Well, look at that next week. God did it anyway. Because God is always working. That's the first point. So Jonah goes and he, and he preaches this fairly lame sermon. And uh, he tells people, listen, you have 40 days. And that brings me to my second point, the reaction of the people. So the Ninevites, uh, I told you uh, from the first week that they were uh, pretty evil and wicked people. They were a violent people. And I say that because uh, the 
king of Nineveh actually describes his citizens like that in verse 8. He says, but let, every, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Okay, that's the way the king described his own people. So they're a violent people. And they get this message uh, from Jonah. Actually, it's from the God of the universe. And the God of the universe tells them, you have 40 days. You have 40 days. And as unlikely as it seems, they begin to respond. And the way it says that they responded is they repented and they covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes. Now, in that day, if you saw somebody in sackcloth and ashes, you knew they were telling you that they had been wrong about something very wrong. Uh, wearing sackcloth and sitting in ashes was a way to, to publicly humble themselves. It's hard to be humbled publicly, isn't it? It'd be like uh, if you bought tickets for a Cleveland Cavaliers basketball game at Rocket Mortgage Arena, and you bought cheap tickets so you were way up high, and even though you knew that the players are huge human beings, they look tiny from where you're sitting. This may or may not be loosely based on a true story. All right. But then at the end of the first quarter, you look down and you see seats that are close to the court. And you realize they're empty because they, really wealthy people have bought those seats. And they're so wealthy that they have so many options that they can just decide not to use them. And it's a shame for those seats not to be used. So you work your way down and you sit in those seats. You get settled in. You just go, this is going to be amazing. And then you feel a tap on your shoulder. And you look around and there's an usher with four very well-dressed, slightly miffed people. And the usher says, let me see your ticket. And you hand him your ticket. And he looks at your ticket and he says, your seats are there. And then you get up and you start that, that long trek to your proper seats. That's the modern rendition of sackcloth and ashes. That's what it feels like. To humble yourself simply means this, that you return to your proper seat. That's it. That's what humble yourself means. Now, if you're only a couple rows away from your proper seat, it's not that big of a deal, not that big of a humbling. But if you are far away from your proper seat, well, then you will be very humbled indeed. The Ninevites were sitting in God's seat. The Ninevites were sitting in God's seat. Listen, I told you they were violent people. We are the most violent when we sit in God's seat. When we decide what's right and wrong, when we judge people, when we critique people, when we get on social media with a rant, when we look down on people, that is God's seat. And what happens with the Ninevites is that they are convicted of sitting in God's seat, so they humble themselves and they get into their proper seat. Listen, God will never do in your life what he wants to do until you get out of his seat. God will never do what he wants to do in your life until you get out of his seat. That's why the Bible talks so much about humility because it's so hard. 
So Jonah preaches this sermon, and people begin to respond, and it goes like a wave from person to person until there are hundreds, and then thousands of people all moving out of God's place, and it goes from the lowest to the highest all the way to when the king is now sitting in the nosebleeds in sackcloth and ashes. And then they wait. They wait breathlessly to find out what's going to happen at the end of those 40 days. And that brings me to the response of God, the response of God. So Jonah begins uh, with God telling Jonah, I want to use you to reach people who are far away from me, the Ninevites. Jonah says, no, I don't want to. The reason he didn't want to is that he hated the Ninevites, hated them. He wanted God to destroy all of them. He wanted all of them dead. Now, I've told you over and over again that the Ninevites were very evil and very violent people. But this is a side note, right? The Ninevites are evil and wicked people. But the most violent person in the book of Jonah is Jonah. The most violent person in the book of Jonah is Jonah, and this is why. Sometimes our response to perceived wickedness is even more wicked. Please hear me on this. This is the problem with our world. This is the problem with the church. This is a problem with Christians. Sometimes our response to perceived wickedness is even more wicked, and that's Jonah. And it's understandable in some ways because violence always escalates. Like you can watch kids and you watch kids just, if somebody does one thing, the thing that comes back to them is a little bit more and a little bit more. And a little, you know, I always think of the, the, uh, the movie, A Christmas Story, that Christmas classic with little Ralphie who wants the Red Ryder BB gun. And there are two bullies that terrorize uh, Ralphie and his little brother. And there's one scene where they terrorize them and Ralphie and his little brother run off. And the, the two bullies, there's a big one and a smaller one. And they're standing next to each other. And one punches the other one kind of good naturedly. And the guy who gets punched goes, and he punches back harder. And then the guy who gets punched harder looks back and he punches harder. And then the, the big bully finally punches so hard that they stop. Right? That's the way violence works. That's why we think to deal with violence. That's why we deal with violence in our world. That, you know, countries get bigger armies, you get better weapons, you get bigger sticks, and eventually there'll be peace because of the fear. That's not the way God does it. God, that's what Jonah wanted God to do, but God has a different plan because to God, violence isn't the problem. Violence is, God doesn't have a plan for the Ninevites to curb their behavior. That's not what he's after. He's after their hearts because the heart is always the problem. Listen, if, when, I talk, when I talk disparagingly about you behind your back, that's kind of disconcerting, isn't it? If I do that, right, it's not, it's not what I say that's the problem. It's, it's coming out of my heart, and my heart is the problem. That's why Jesus says what he says in Luke chapter 6, which what he says is brilliant. He says, uh, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. 
For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. So God goes after the Ninevites not to curb their behavior. When God comes after you, it's not about some kind of behavior modification. It's to change your heart. Of course, the question is, how do you change the human heart? God has a plan, and he does it through grace. Grace. Astounding. I've told you uh, a few weeks ago that grace is the most concentrated form of love the world has ever known. The older I get, the more convinced I am of this, that the thing you need today more than anything else is a deeper understanding of grace. The thing that you will need tomorrow more than anything else is a deeper understanding of grace. Because grace is the only thing that has the power to change your heart, to really change you. Like religion will try to modify your behavior, but grace can actually change who you are. And grace is wonderfully complex. I told you last week, I gave you a definition of grace. And it's a great definition, but it's incomplete. The definition is that grace is a completely undeserved gift from a completely unobligated giver. An undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. That's really important to get both those things. Because so many times I feel like God isn't obligated to give everybody a good life, but I've lived, I'm a pretty good person, so I deserve it. Or I don't deserve it, but God is obligated to make everybody's life good and to answer everybody's prayers. So, but that's not what grace is. Grace is a completely undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. But that's not all grace is. Because if, if you had your house broken into, and someone stole your stuff, and you felt violated and everything, and then they, they caught the culprit, and you went to the trial. And the, the defendant is there, and the, the judge hears all the evidence, and the judge says, you are guilty of you know, what you did. But then he says, listen, I want to show grace to you, so I forgive you. You can go. That's a completely undeserved gift from a completely unobligated giver, but you would be saying, what is the, what in the world? What about justice? And this is the wonderful thing about God. God never extends grace at the expense of justice. God never extends grace at the expense of justice because it would be different in that court. If the defendant was sitting there and, was, and the judge said, you're guilty, and then someone stood in front of the defendant and said, yeah, he's guilty, but I will take his punishment. I will pay the price for what he did. I will recompense the people that he stole from. I will pay the price to society, whatever, so that he can go free. Well, that's grace, but not at the expense of justice. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's part of why Jesus says what he says in Matthew chapter 12. It says this, for Je the, the religious leaders are asking Jesus, what, what sign are you going to give that you're from God? And this is what Jesus says. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus says is the people of Nineveh will rise up and say, you, you, you missed it. You missed the wonder, the glory, the grace of God through Jesus. I've told two different people this week that we've been talking about God, and I've just thought, I can't, I don't understand why there would be anyone who would want some, someone other than the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is exactly what we want God to be like. A God who, who knows justice, who will always do the right thing, but also will provide grace, but not do it at the expense of justice. I always think that you know, when I get to heaven and I'm standing before the throne of God and Jesus is at my side, Jesus is not going to say to God, listen, God, you know Joe was a knucklehead. You know that, I know that, but he really tried hard. So could you cut him a break? It's not what Jesus is going to say. What Jesus is going to say to God is this. God, you know, Joe was a knucklehead, more of a knucklehead than he thinks he was. But I paid for everything. I paid for everything. So because you're a just God, you can't make him pay. Right? That's why 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, if God is doing something in you, in your neighbors, in your friends, in your family, he is working, always working. What happened in Jonah chapter 3 was that Jonah finally obeyed God. And he gave the message that God wanted him to give, as simple as it was. And because God had been working in the people that were far away from him, they responded. They reacted with humility. They got out of God's position, God's place, and they humbled themselves. And what happened as a result of that is that God offered them grace because someone greater than Jonah had paid the price for them. Someone greater than Jonah has paid the price for you and paid the price for me. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we uh, come to you and uh, I pray with all of these people here that you would uh, help us to be obedient to you. I know, I know. I have uh, avoided spiritual conversations because I felt like I, I didn't know where to start. Or I didn't know uh, if they would ask questions I didn't know the answer to. And all you were saying to me then is, will you just obey me? Just take a swing and see. I pray that you would give us that courage, those of us who know you. I pray for all of us that you would continue to work in our lives to make us more like you, more sensitive to you. And I pray for uh, all the people that we know uh, who do not yet know of your love and who have not yet fallen in love with you. I pray for them that you would work in their lives in such a way and then use us to bring them to yourself. We pray this in your blessed name. Amen.